Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapun. We are well into season two and super happy to be on the air bringing you another series of interviews this winter spring of 2021. The gods willing, at least here in Hawaii, the light at the end of the COVID tunnel is getting brighter, which makes it a unique moment to talk about education. This series, now halfway through its second season, has garnered well over 21,000 downloads. We thank you, listeners. We will continue to bring you the stories of agile, adaptive, and innovative public, public charter, and private school educators and education leaders until we have achieved a thousand points of light. We are many va'a, one voyage, all in it for all kids on all islands. Today, my guest is Buddy Leong, a Punahou senior heading towards graduation here in the spring of 2021. Buddy has a marvelous LinkedIn page, which I am going to use to introduce him. In the about section, Buddy writes, and I quote, I'm an aspiring social entrepreneur, youth leader, and investor. In 2015, I was part of the youngest team to win a startup weekend and place as the first runner-up in the global startup battle business competition. I am passionate about Hawaii's community and have over 4,000 community service hours. Currently, I am the executive director of an organization called Virtual Student Experiences, which brings students together with industry professionals willing to share their industry knowledge, experiences, and tips with students. To improve on my finance and computer science technical skills, I have completed Introduction to Python Data Science at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, and I'm enrolled in Google's Data Analytics Certificate Program. I have held world rankings in two different video games, been in the top 1% of three, and can solve a Rubik's Cube in about a minute. 
How's about that for an introduction? Buddy's parents are entrepreneurs and authors. It is through them that I became aware of Buddy's work. Thank you, Kari and Evan, for partnering with me to make this interview possible. And now, here's my conversation with Buddy Leong. Buddy Leong, I am super stoked to have you on my show. Ah, thank you, Josh. I'm very happy to be here. So, Buddy, I suspect that your workload is pretty heavy right now as graduation approaches. What What's the heaviest weight on you at the moment in terms of school? Mm-hmm. So, I guess back when this school year started, Punahou really changed up how their school year is going to look. And so now we're going by what's called a block schedule. Mm. So every five to six weeks, we um, we switch what's called a block. Um, and depending on what classes you sign up for, you'll either have one or two of these blocks. And the thing about these block classes are they meet every single day for two hours. Mm. And so for some students, that can be um, really, really hard. And for some, they really, really like it because in five to six weeks, they're complete, completely done with that class. Um, and for me, I, I really like this block schedule, um, but there are some difficulties to it, uh, such as the homework load. Mm-hmm. So, of course, after every, every night, after having two hours of class, there is quite a bit of homework that comes along with it. And... Right now, I'm taking European philosophy and creative science nonfiction. Um, and it seems like every single week, I'm turning in a major project. And so this past week, I just turned in my third major paper and my third major assignment for European philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of writing that you're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, and now suddenly, buddy, I'm remembering the old days when I was at Budaho and how heavy the writing was. Um, I'm getting a bit of a nostalgic rush here, um, or maybe not so nostalgic. Um, so look, I, I don't want to spend all of our time today talking about COVID and the pandemic because there is a light at the end of the terrible tunnel. And um, But I, I do want to kind of get a COVID question on the table early, mm-hmm. and then we'll get into some more exciting things later. So um so tell our listeners what it's been like to live your entire senior year in high school as a, quote, COVID student. In other words, what, what were the highs, buddy, the lows, the moments of greatest challenge where you felt like you showed resilience and problem-solving skills over this senior year during COVID? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we started off with the senior year, obviously, I'm pretty sure all of my classmates, and me included, knew that we were really going to lose out on a lot of things. Um, But due to what happened during the summer, I also knew that there was going to be a lot of opportunities. And so during this year, um, due to, of course, the block schedule and our semester classes combined, we still have a little bit of extra time and we have the privilege and opportunity to learn from home. Mm -hmm. And so learning from home for me has really, really been a very big opportunity because it allows me to work in my own workspace and sometimes work at my own pace. Um, and with, with that, I have a bunch of extra time that I can manage on my own. So with that time, I've been using it to join various community groups, um, start my own organization, 
um, consult with different companies, mm -hmm. really be able to uh, take advantage of opportunities that w I would not have been able to really even think of if we weren't in this so-called COVID pandemic. Mm. And and so, but buddy, we, you know, we think about high school, we've always thought about high school as sort of a time where the most socialization takes place. And yet you, um, not only did COVID take that away for a period of time, but you've elected um, to continue on working in your own space. So what are your thoughts about that in terms of the socialization part? Have you been able to maintain that virtually? What's what's that like for you? Mm -hmm. Virtually having classes with my peers is very hard in the socialization aspect. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your students or viewers might tell you that uh, a lot of the times it's very awkward sitting in the virtual room with the teacher staring at all of your classmates and when mm. they ask a question um, when nobody answered the room becomes very awkward very fast um, yeah and but have you been also able outside of class to maintain you know your relationships with your peers even just you know the friendships and the the light stuff as we might say mm-hmm I think COVID presented a pretty interesting opportunity where, um, at least for me, a lot of my more close friends became closer and a lot of the more distant ones or mm. uh, sort of peer-to-peer -peer acquaintances that I would say how to in school sort of drifted off. But me and my closer friends are still friends. Um, I still hang out with some of them very occasionally because of this pandemic. But I'm sure that once this pandemic is over, Mm -hmm. I'll be able to up that socialization aspect, um, especially going off to college next year. Yeah, what an interesting idea. I mean, may maybe your muscles are even more sort of, you know, um, um, attuned, if you will, um, because of the pandemic, it sounds like. I mean, you'll have additional socialization tools in your, in your toolbox, right? Mm -hmm. Most yeah. definitely. And I think that another thing that's really been taken away for not only not only in school is the uh, social networking events that I used to go to. Mm. And that presented itself as a fairly big opportunity for me to build my connections and build my knowledge base about various other things and other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the silver linings that everybody seems to be talking about is that suddenly we're able to connect with people pretty much anywhere around the world um, with, with apparent ease um, in ways that we hadn't thought of before because we were so used to meeting in person. Yeah. Super interesting. So, so buddy, look, here, here's, let's start with something really fun. Um, in um, the about section of your LinkedIn site, you noted mm -hmm. that you can solve a Rubik's cube in about a minute. Mm -hmm. So I want to unpack this uh, a little bit with you. First, it seems to be a point of pride for you that you can do this puzzle in just a few seconds. So why? What, what is the awesome feeling you get when you solve the puzzle so fast? Mm -hmm. Well, personally, I really, really like puzzles. And so when I first got my Rubik's Cube, I spent hours and I took about two days learning the algorithms and situations in which to solve a Rubik's Cube. Um, and after I memorized all the different solutions, it was just a matter of getting faster and faster. Mm -hmm. um, and then after I was able to solve it with one hand, then it turned into how can I solve this using one hand? And then how can I use this or how can I solve this Rubik's Cube using my non-dominant hand? And so what I really love about Rubik's Cubes is is the real 
challenging puzzle aspect that I guess not many people can do. And when a lot of people look at a Rubik's Cube, they're like, how, how do I even move this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, what I really like is that puzzle aspect and how it can be applied to many other different things in my life. Mm-hmm. And if we zoom up to 10,000 feet above Buddy Leong doing the cube, what, <laughs> what's, the, what's the greater meaning of the moment, Buddy? What does it reveal about Buddy Leong that is important? Mm-hmm. I, think, I think what's really important about, I guess, learning and developing skills in the Rubik's Cube, at least for me, is, I guess, sort of, the journey that happened afterwards. So after I got my regular 3 by 3 Rubik's Cube, I developed sort of an interest in Rubik's Cubing. And so I got a whole bunch of other Rubik's puzzles as well. And so right now in my room, I have about maybe six, five to six different Rubik's Cube puzzles that I have algorithms memorized for that I can do. And I think that, especially since it's what some people might consider to be a complex puzzle, just shows sort of a determination Mm. um, and an interest in something that some people may consider to be boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right. I I can see that. And so now you've prompted me to think about another question, buddy, which is, let's, since... Let's imagine for a moment that you have an opportunity maybe with two or three of your peers in front of you to coach them in developing their skills, uh, you know, solving the Rubik's puzzle. Like what Mm -hmm. do you imagine that would look and sound and feel like as you as you coach them to move forward in the in the development of their puzzle solving skills? Mm-hmm. So probably the first thing that I would do is I would get them familiar with the notation that Rubik's Cubes are solved in when you're reading it off of a paper or when you're reading the algorithm off of a paper. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you search up things online about how to, you're presented with videos, but you're also presented with this complex notation that... Um, looks very, very complicated at first, but after you start to understand it, then it becomes very easy to manipulate the cube and mm-hmm. sort of learn how to solve it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some people, memorizing letters is easier than actually doing it. So um, that's the first thing I would do with them. I would get them familiar with the chess notation. And then after I got them familiar with the chess notation, then I would um, s- sort of get them familiar with manipulating the cube and sort of twisting and turning it, uh, making sure that they can sort of go through algorithms on their own, whether they make it up or whether it be um, something that's already written down. Mm-hmm. So that would sort of lay down a sort of base level um, understanding of how to Rubik's Cube. Mm-hmm. And then they would move forward with actually working to solve the puzzle as you were mm-hmm. watching them to do that. Um, so I'm curious, buddy, you know, in terms of like, are there transferable skills that come from your work with these puzzles that, you know, translate into other parts of your life? Mm-hmm. I think the puzzle part is really translatable. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was working during the summer during a financial an- analysis job, uh, I was working on a financial model. And what I really noticed, there was this moment that it really clicked that 
this financial model is actually a puzzle and manipulating these different pieces to try and make it all work together and fit is it's sort of like a Rubik's Cube. It's sort of like a complex puzzle that nobody likes because it seems to me that not many people really like spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it was, it was really interesting to me to see how um, me having the determination to learn the Rubik's Cube was also shown in me trying to really learn how to manipulate mm -hmm. this financial model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's super fascinating. So, so speaking of complex puzzles that need to be solved, um, you received a certificate of commendation from the United States Senate. Um, so, what was that all about, and and why did you include it in your LinkedIn profile? Um. I'm sorry, Josh, but I, I I received two. I received one for a documentary, and I received one for a product idea. But mm. could you tell me which one you're referring to? Well, on your LinkedIn profile, you you listed a certificate of commendation from the U.S. Senate, and I was wondering if you had participated in a U.S. Senate program um, of some sort. Was there anything like that? No. Um, no. So the certificate of commendations, I got mine from Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii. Oh, got it. For something you did. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. So the most recent one was for a climate change documentary, which mm. actually won an honorable mention in the C-SPAN National Student Documentary. And mine was on climate change. Um, so I, for my documentary, I sort of took the angle of this is what the problem is. And here are some possible solutions for the future. And what I did is I interviewed three professionals from around the world, mm. um, asking them their opinions about climate change, the problem, the impacts, and sort of where this could go in terms of solutions. And so I compiled that into my documentary. Um, I submitted it to the C-SPAN National Competition, and I won an honorable mention. Wow, that's that's amazing. What what was the form of the documentary? Like in what what was the when did you do this and what were the technologies that you were using to make the film? Like you know, your phone or how did that work? Mm -hmm. So, um with the C-SPAN requirements, we had to use C-SPAN footage. Uh also uh. we could do interviews with professionals like I did. Um but since they are far away, I use the online video conferencing technologies to uh, meet with these people and ask them my questions. Mm -hmm. it was, it's very interesting how I use Skype instead of Zoom because now Zoom would be the normal go-to in terms of video conferencing. Um, but back then, I think it was two years ago that I used Skype to meet with these professionals and talk with them about their experiences in um, the climate field. And I compiled those interviews along with C-SPAN footage. I did a little bit of voiceover mm -hmm. um, and compiled it all into my documentary. Can you characterize the conclusions that these three people you interviewed came to about climate change? In other words, the, the message that came through your documentary? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Pretty much climate is one of the number one problems of our generation. If we can't fix our planet, then we can't live on our planet, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so it's a freight train that's coming at us at high speed um, and we have to act now, sounds like. Yes, for sure. 
Yeah. Wow. So what was it like? I'm just so curious because I've also made a series of documentary films, buddy. Um, what was it like interviewing these individuals? What was the preparation like for you before you did the interviews? Mm -hmm. So the reason I had the idea to interview these professionals for my climate documentary is because I had actually been interviewing um, professionals in my field of interest on the side um, before. So mm -hmm. I am interested in going into finance when I'm older. And so right around, right around that year, I started reaching out to high finance professionals in a variety of different career fields to really talk with them about what they do, what their job is, what skills they use. Um, what their education was like, and how exactly do I get into their job if that's where I choose to go. Mm. And so I'd already had experience with talking with adults and interviewing them. It was only a matter of how do I shift the focus of career onto the climate change documentary mm. and ask some targeted questions about that. Mm -hmm. So you had developed skills in interviewing people and, and gaining information from them. So it's just a pretty easy hop skip to change subjects then. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Um, so buddy on your LinkedIn profile, you, um, listed yourself as an assistant at Honolulu Christian church and you mm -hmm. described your work this way. And I quote, collaborated with a team of 12 to plan activities and organize programs for eight different churches in Japan, implemented activities and led a group of 90 students through dance, song, reading, crafts, and play, and assisted church leaders and long-term missionaries in developing new and engaging programs for current members and new members. So my, my question, buddy, is about the skills and the habits mm -hmm. and the dispositions a young person needs to do this kind of work effectively. So let's imagine you're coaching and mentoring the person who's going to succeed you in this position um, in the months ahead. So who do they need to be, buddy? And what do they need to be able to do to succeed in this position that you've held? Mm -hmm. I think in really any position, communication is key. Being able to communicate with peers, people your age, um, and adults is really important. Because I know a lot of people my age, they um, sort of may not be as confident to speak to adults in a um, sometimes confrontational manner. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes, especially when you're leading an activity or a group or, or even a team, you have to be able to communicate your ideas clearly. And so I would want them to sort of develop communication skills, whether that be um, through talking with me or having them talk with adults going to different events and really speaking in front of other people to gain that confidence. Mm -hmm. um, but another thing that I think is very important, especially in, in leadership, is operational management. Mm. And so my journey through gaining operational management skills is actually, it took me years. And I gained mine from a place called Winners Camp Hawaii as a leader. Mm -hmm. And... I first went there as a camper and I was extremely shy. I almost barely said, uh, I would say five sentences a day. And as astounding as that sounds, I was able to really uh, take into my head the messages that they were sending to me and how, and really interact with all of the different junior leaders and leaders that they had at that camp mm. and realize that this is actually this is a whole new way of looking at life and how can I implement this into my life and help to 
show other people this this mm-hmm. different way of looking at life. And so after a couple of times of going as a camper, I went back as a leader. Um, and then that was an amazing experience. Um, but during my time as a leader, I got to really experience how does this camp work and what are the operations that go on to actually running this seven-day-long camp. Um, and after sort of learning it, I got to be their operations coordinator. Mm-hmm. So I was put into a very core leadership position where I had to coordinate teams, work with peers, um, lead volunteers, and make sure that everything was going smoothly. All of the activities were set up and broken down mm. on time. And so that's really where my mm. operational management skills came from. Right. So I, I know this might sound contrived, buddy, but are there parallels that you can draw between your work with a Rubik's Cube and this work that you did with Honolulu Christian Church? Mm. Was it a puzzle? In what ways was the work that you did a puzzle that you needed to solve? Mm -hmm. I guess, in a way, most of the work that was cited on the LinkedIn is from a mission that I went on to Japan. Mm -hmm. And so I guess trying to figure out people of different cultures um, is sort of a puzzle in its way, trying to breach that language barrier Mm. um, through, through the Word of God or through a translator is sort of a puzzle in itself trying to figure out how to communicate, how to uh, make and run activities that both cultures are going to understand, sort of a puzzle. Mm, That's really interesting. (laughs) I mean, wow, if the world saw intercultural communications as a puzzle that needed to be solved instead of a series of conflicts, um, you know, that seemed to scare people, I think we might be better off um, Mm -hmm. in the world. That's a really interesting idea, buddy. Awesome. So, um, hey everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Buddy Leong is a senior at Punahou, the nation's largest private school when measured by student numbers, and he will graduate here shortly in the spring of 2021. So, Buddy, you listed yourself as um, head of back-end operations for Save Hawaii Jobs and Businesses, which, and I quote, does webinars that focus on teaching businesses how to utilize the CARES Act to try and bring as much federal aid from $2 trillion in care package, uh, the care package to Hawaii as possible. So what, what does it mean to be back-end operations, quote unquote, and what is your role or was your role? What, what drives, well, let me ask you the driver question second. So let's, let's start with a description. What does it mean to be back-end mm-hmm. operations? Mm-hmm. So the Safe Hawaii Jobs Businesses Group was founded last year in April when the pandemic really hit all of the small businesses really hard and the federal government released that aid in the form of the um, PPP and IDLE grants. But the problem was that it's all it was released in uh, super technical language that a lot of at least small businesses have a hard time deciphering and understanding to see do I qualify for this financial aid? How do I get it? And am I going to have to pay it back? And so what the Save Hawaii Jobs and Businesses Group was formed to do is it is comprised of two employment lawyers, one accountant, an executive recruiter, and a representative from the Hawaii Small Business Administration. And so that group um, gave easy-to-understand information to Hawaii small businesses on those PPP and IDLE grants. And so my job, what my job was to do 
it was to coordinate these online events through uh, by using Zoom webinars to uh, host these professionals so that they could share their messaging and answer questions of Hawaii small businesses. Mm, wow. And, and so one then wonders, what drives you to succeed as head of back-end operations? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess really seeing the need of this service sort of is a fairly large motivation for me to want to help these small businesses in really any way that I can possibly, any way that I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, in our first webinar that was announced, I'd say 18 hours before we went live, had about 700 registrants. Wow. So it just goes to show how many people really were curious about this this money and how much they didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in our most recent webinars, we still have hundreds of people that come to listen to our updates about mm-hmm. um, changes made by Congress for the the PPP aid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, buddy. I, I've talked a number of times on this podcast with guests about the fact that in my first career, more than 40 years ago, I was a chef. Um, and one of the things that I came to understand about myself as a chef was that I wasn't a frontline chef. I wasn't that guy with a tall hat, um, you know, with flames going up around you and, and very visible to the restaurant as a whole. I was the kind of chef that worked in the back. I was the prep chef. I loved liked getting things ready for people who were going to be on the front side doing, you know, the hot preparation. And it sounds to me like, to a certain extent, that's how you see yourself in this role, that as back-end operations, you're the person who's kind of putting all the pieces together um, so that the operation can move forward. Is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think back-end operations are people, um, like myself, are very important. They need to be especially depending on their role they need to be able to coordinate everyone together make sure that everyone's schedules fit together for the event uh, make sure that uh, the audience knows about the event and when it's happening and how to register for it especially if it's online mm. um yeah i think that yeah. the back-end operations people play a very crucial role in really any organization yeah it's like another puzzle that needs to be solved um yeah, exactly. so that so that something can move forward that's just fascinating so um, also on the web, I learned that you are an aspiring social entrepreneur, youth leader, and investor. In 2015, you were part of the youngest team to win a startup weekend and place as the first runner-up in the global startup battle business competition. So wow, buddy, um, you were still Thank in you. middle school at that point, weren't you? Yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it was a really, really great experience. What was the startup business? Tell us about what happened there. So our idea was a universal hat mount for uh, GoPros. It was a universal GoPro mount. Mm. It originally started off as an idea where you could uh, attach your GoPro to a clip that uh, latches onto your cap. It was primarily targeted at surfers who needed a way to hold their GoPro without using their hands, Mm. without using a bulky vest that attached a GoPro to their chest or their surfboard if they want to get that that first person view of them going down that wave and Mm. um, catching a gnarly barrel. Mm -hmm. But as we move forward in our iterations of the product, we realized that due to the rare earth metals magnets that we were using, that it actually had a lot more applications than we had previously noted. Mm. And so we noted that it could also be be stuck to 
all metal surfaces, which opens it up to uh, a wide variety of different other applications. So we primarily looked at sports. So for tennis, you could clip it onto the net to get a net view of your mm. uh, of the player either doing a swing, which you can uh, analyze later on, or if you're just videotaping a game from a cool view. Uh, we also went to the baseball field and stuck it onto the chain link fence and took some footage of that. Mm. So it could also be used in baseball. And as we went on, we figured out just many, many different other applications of this product that we initially thought was um, just for surfers. And so mm. that was very interesting to see how that product mm. was able to evolve and move forward. Outside of sports, what was a notable application of, of this product? Remember, remember anything like in business or um, in the medical field or, or anything like that? That was a long time well, ago. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, I mean, since it has magnets, it can really stick to anything mm. metal. And as long as if you want to record something, um, I envision it could be used for that. Right. Any Any sort of design process, right? If you're trying to figure out movement. Um, and to analyze that movement to figure out how you want to make something better. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. So, buddy, you know, because this was a, a team competition, right? I'm mm -hmm. I'm super interested in team dynamics. I think I, I always have been, but it, it's been increasingly the cases I've been involved in education redesign. So what was your quote, youngest team like? Like, what were the dynamics of that team? What, why did this team succeed in the way that it mm -hmm. did? Mm -hmm. I think that one of the main reasons that we succeeded is because of the preparation from our parents that we'd had um, in the many years leading up to that competition. Uh, my parents, Lee, um, raised all of our kids to have what's called the entrepreneurial mindset, mm. entrepreneurial growth mindset, where if you see a problem... You need to have three different solutions on how to solve it, and you need to be able to execute those three different solutions. And so when we got to the startup weekend, it was very interesting interacting with the different adults that were in that same competition and mm. how they viewed us as just kids. Um, in contrast to when the competition was over and we beat them and they wanted to take our award away because they said that kids shouldn't be able to participate in the competition. Wow. Wow. That, what? That, tell me more about that. That's kind of shocking, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, um, what happened there? Yeah, we didn't, we didn't like it either, but the, ultimately the judges determined that um, the startup weekend didn't necessarily have an age minimum. Uh, mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the adults were very happy that they got beat out by a bunch of kids. <laughs> uh, I think they, <laughs> it's, I wouldn't be very happy about it either. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, that that sounds like you guys were pushing some boundaries there in terms of who you are and how you existed together as a team of of young people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. yeah, that's super interesting. So, um, one of your peers at Punahou, Noel uh, Nagaoka, 
wrote a really interesting piece in the Punahou Bulletin, which you commented on in your LinkedIn um, feed, which is how I picked up on it. Um, and sh- the, it, this piece had two super interesting paragraphs, buddy, I would love for you to comment on. So let me let me read the first paragraph that's interesting in my mind um, that, that uh, Noelle wrote. So, and I quote, this is hardly the first, she's referencing COVID, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is hardly the first challenge my class of 2020 has faced. I was born a few months before 9-11 and thus never knew a world without strict airport security. We entered elementary school in the midst of an economic recession, began middle school after the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing, and went into hiding in 2018 after receiving a false alert of a ballistic missile headed towards Hawaii. So I'm super curious, buddy, what you think about this and that that your generation is being shaped by powerful forces and events that seem to come ashore like huge and sometimes destructive waves. What do you think about that? I think it I think that's a very interesting way of, I guess, thinking about a generation. Um, I think you can definitely think about all those different challenges and think about how they've shaped us. Um, but also how we've made it through all of those different challenges. And thank God that that 2018 middle school scare was just a scare. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think our generation is definitely thinking about many different issues in a way that hasn't that have, has not ever been thought of before, or in, at least in a popular way. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially with these very powerful fo- forces, I think we're seeing a lot now that the people are um, really standing up and taking responsibility for what change they want to see. Do you ever feel, buddy, like these powerful waves are breaking too fast and too frequently and that it it almost feels a little bit unfair? Or is, is this something more akin to like, this is the way life works and we deal with it as it happens? Um, yeah, I think for me, at least I am privileged enough to have the mentality that life goes on since I'm, I'm not that greatly impacted by these, um, different challenges that everyone has to go through. Mm. Um, to me, life, life goes on and I can either get stuck up on the past challenges or move forward with the future. Mm -hmm. And, and so Noel also wrote, and I quote, Each generation has been shaped not only by the hardships endured, but by how these obstacles were overcome. She writes, I consider the symbol of my generation to be the Swiss army knife, which is full of useful tools to survive any situation. We have endured so many challenging events, but with each one came lessons and skills to better equip us for what's ahead. So what are your what are your thoughts about this, buddy, about the Swiss army knife metaphor um, as the symbol for your generation? I think that is applicable mostly. I think that at least as I have matured into an older person, um, I sort of see these different events not only as problems but as opportunities. Um, and in this COVID pandemic was the first real opportunity for me to sort of sort of start to build myself and my set of skills. Hmm. But the the challenge, at least in others, is that I'm not really seeing that with them. 
Um, I see a lot of my peers focused on finishing school, which is 100% not a bad thing. Um, but it's just that I feel like there's so many different opportunities that are that we're being presented with now, um, especially in this unique time of living um, that they're just sort of missing out on. Mm. I, th- I think I was going to ask you, buddy, about your your degree of confidence at this point that your generation um, is developing the kinds of problem-solving skills that you've been talking about for yourself um, here over the last half hour. Like, are, is, is your generation, are, are you confident that your generation is developing those problem-solving skills uh, enough to be able to um, lead us into the future, or are you concerned? To me, I think that a lot of the development in terms of leadership, uh, problem solving and collaboration comes a little bit later. And mm-hmm. so since I sort of live in a bubble of high school kids um, in Hawaii, it's very hard to, I guess, make a generalization about um, my generation as a whole in how they're sort of solving problems, taking initiative, mm-hmm. um, and taking on the, the new and old problems of this world. Mm-hmm. And but we can say with some confidence, right, that you definitely understand, um, you know, the process of developing problem-solving skills. It seems to be right at the heart of of Buddy Leong's DNA. Is that a fair characterization? I, I would like to assume that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think so. Um, <laughs> So that's awesome. So everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Buddy Leon. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. (laughs) 
Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Buddy Leong, an aspiring social entrepreneur, youth leader, investor, and soon-to-be graduate of Punahou School. So Buddy, in the Punahou Bulletin, I read, and I quote, Last April, with students across the globe attending school from home, Buddy Leong, who's going to graduate in 2021, had an idea to create free Zoom webinars for high school and college students to connect with professionals in their careers of interest. He recruited his brother, um, Coco Leong, and fellow Punahou students Jonathan Wu and Thomas King, as well as several students in California, to launch virtual student experiences. Wow. So what a lead in, buddy. <laughs> our, our listeners want to know what happened after this article posted last September, some seven months ago. What, what's, an, what's unfolded in terms of virtual student experiences? Mm-hmm. Um, man, that, that really was a long, long time ago. Um, I think we've come really far. We established a South Korean team. And so we've had, uh, we were working with a couple of students in South Korea uh, to host webinars in Korean for Korean students with Korean speaking professionals. Mm. And so what I think, I think that's super, super interesting how we can apply this concept from, from Hawaiian English to uh, another place across the world. Like I said, it's sort of, sort of like a puzzle trying to figure out how exactly this is all going to work together. Um, but in addition to the South Korean team, VST has also continued to host various career webinars in English. Um, and I think since then, we've also, I think since April, we we, sort, we have worked with the Hawaii DOE CTE department to host some webinars in Japanese and Korean for um, Japanese and Korean students in Japanese and Korean, which was a very interesting and awesome opportunity. Mm. So what's the core mission and vision of VSE? <laughs> um, the main core mission and vision of VSE is to provide a easily accessible and free CTE resource for students around the world. Um, <laughs> So basically for anyone who is curious about a career or wants to learn more about the wants to learn more about a career that they are currently pursuing whether it be in college or high school um, then they can go to VSC look at our webinars and learn from professionals who have actually been in that field taking primary source information um, sort of learn from them what it's like on the job and really what it takes to get to where they are mm-hmm and it seems to me like um, kind of the the bedrock of this thing is is an, an assumption that there is a curiosity factor out there that there are young people who are wanting to know about certain types of careers. CTE, by the way, stands for Career Technical um, Experience, right, or Education. Um, <laughs> so there, there's this curiosity factor, and you are tapping into that, right, buddy? Is that that's mm-hmm. what's going on here? Yes. And, and so how, how do you bring people into the experience? What's the recruitment process like, or how do you open it up to people? Um, so we have our marketing manager, which is my brother, Coco Leong. And so what he does is he posts um, at least our past webinars on all of our social channels, which students can view at any time. 
And before webinars are go live, uh, I create a weekly update email, which I send it to all of our partner schools and programs, mm. which they send to their students. Um, and from there, they're able to sign up for live webinars with these um, professionals and ask them any questions they want to. So yeah, main streams are through that mm. weekly mm-hmm. update, which anybody can sign up for on our on our website at, sorry for the plug, www.virtualstudentexperiences.com um, or by being a student at any one of our partner schools or organizations. Mm. Yeah, definitely sounds like you're leveraging social media to the max in order to uh, get the word out to people. That's that's super interesting. Um, so you also list yourself uh, on LinkedIn as a talent acquisition analyst for Brain Gain Hawaii. So my question, buddy, is about traditional high school transcripts, grades, SAT Mm -hmm. scores, and other metrics (laughs) that don't seem to reveal much about who a person is, what they can actually do, and what they know. So in in your perfect world, buddy, what evidence do you need to make a great talent acquisition decision? Like how... And well, let me ask you that first, and then I'll ask you a follow-up question about about um, education. Mm-hmm. Well, talent acquisition is really um, that follows under recruiting. So I think it really depends on the job that the um, that the hiring company or person is looking for, um, what sort of skills they're looking for, what sort of education background, what kind of experience background, whether they want an entry-level person or some person with 10 levels of experience in a specific industry. Um, So it's really looking at a whole bunch of different things and trying to find this perfect person for this company. Mm -hmm. And what are are the skills and habits and dispositions that you're on the alert for um, as you look at talent acquisition? Um, It really depends on the specific job that the Mm-hmm. hiring manager or the um, C-suite professional is looking forward to, um, is looking to hire. Well, say, let's say one area of interest for you is finance, right? Mm-hmm. So wh- what are, what are those, um, what are those talents that you're looking for? Let's say, for example, if I were um, a financial firm looking to hire somebody. Mm-hmm. So at least at my age, you'd probably be looking be looking for a financial analyst and at that point you would probably be looking for at least one internship um, in addition to skills such as financial modeling um, excel work hmm. uh, leadership communication uh, different technical skills like a certain level of math or possibly com- some computer science or data science hmm. um, and and some yeah. ability to solve puzzles, right? Yeah, financial puzzles, which <laughs> which are, are some of the hardest puzzles possible, at least in my mind, because I wasn't a math person. Um, I never have been. Um, so that that's so interesting, buddy. And so I I know this might be a, a wicked hard question, but you know, just giving you the opportunity to think about education as a whole, like how do we how do we backwards design this concept? Um, into the classroom like how do we how do we do that in education so that what we're doing is is capturing talents and skills and habits and dispositions rather than just let's say a grade on a paper or a grade on a test how do we do that Mm -hmm. 
I think watching the film most likely to succeed planted some very crucial ideas into my mind for this question. Hmm. But having the students actually work on a project and build skills that way um, is a very, very good way for them to actually learn applicable um, knowledge and skills. Mm-hmm. And so in the film Most Likely to Succeed, these students worked on, um, for example, a play that sort of taught them about international affairs. It taught them about history and it sort of forced them to look at contemporary issues and relate them to today and create their own play off of that. And their entire year was based off of this one project, which, as they said um, in the film, is really, really non-traditional because you may not be getting this deep, deep understanding into one specific area. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my mind, you're going to forget that super deep understanding in that one area, or at least 90% of it anyways. But the way that they taught it is um, through experiential learning and skill building, which I feel if I were to go through that process, I would retain more of that information mm-hmm. and become uh, a better student and better learner in that way. Because I would, I would be able to see exactly where I can apply this in my life, um, how this is going to be applied later on, and just the whole process of why I should be why I should be interested in this and why I should be learning this. Mm-hmm. I, I know this might, this is unorthodox to do this in a podcast that might be listened to, you know, months from now, buddy, but coming up next week on April 14th in 2021, um, and I'll, I'll text you about this after we're done today. Um, we're doing a retrospective to most likely to succeed. So we're bringing back mm-hmm. Samantha and Brian, the two students um, for a panel discussion with their teachers oh. and some of the principals and I, I would absolutely love for you to be on that uh, on that call um, because Samantha's story is particularly interesting. Um, you know, here she was, this the sort of organizer of this play or the director of this play mm-hmm. in the film. But today she's in college studying astrobiology. Um, wow. So, you know, there we go, talking about transferable skills, right? Mm-hmm. Um, super interesting. So, you know, just kind of finishing up about the talent acquisition thing, um, I was just very struck, buddy, as I was preparing for our conversation today and, you know, spending a lot of time on your LinkedIn page and also just Googling and some of the articles that you've been talked about and so on, um, that if if I were looking to hire somebody, if I were looking to hire you, buddy, I really wouldn't care at all and wouldn't even want to see, probably, your high school transcripts, your grades that I just... Mm-hmm don't care much about them other than the fact that they would tell me that you worked incredibly hard, right? Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. I, I 100% agree, especially when at least I'm going through these different resumes. I go through hundreds of resumes and thousands of people. Um, I never look at what high school they went to hmm. or... Um, they never list their transcript, of course. Um, I don't really look for National Honor Society. What I really look for is what experience does this person have? What are their different types of skills? What exactly can this person do? Mm. Um, I think school is, is, is very good at um, maybe building some technical knowledge about a certain topic, mm-hmm. but experience will 
top all of that in in a flash. Mm -hmm. And do you feel at times, buddy, like when you're working your way through these these hundreds or thousands of resumes, that you start to develop a talent, if you will, for seeing what you need to see in terms of talent? Does that make sense? It's like you you're 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 puzzling your way through all of these resumes, and you're starting to get better and better at picking up from it what really seems to matter for this twenty first century. Is that, does that a, a fair characterization of kind of how things have been happening for you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I also think that the, um, the LinkedIn recruitment software is very good at allowing you to make different customizations about who exactly you want to find. And so mm. it narrows it down pretty well. Um, and then it's just up to me to go and find exactly who I want. Mm, yeah, it's super, super interesting. So, um, buddy, as we as we come down to the end today, this has been an absolute blast, um, and and I'm having way too much fun here. But I have a, a few couple more questions to ask you. So, um, last year I, I read a book by David Epstein titled Range, and Epstein examined the world's most successful athletes, artists musicians, inventors, forecasters, and scientists, and others. And he discovered that in most fields, buddy, especially those that are complex and unpredictable, generalists, not specialists, are primed to excel. In other words, generalists are often, often find their path late, and they juggle many interests rather than focusing on one. And they're also more creative, more agile, and able to make connections uh, than more connections than their specialized peers who cool. sometimes can't see those connections. So you, buddy, seem to be a pretty epic emerging generalist. Um, but I don't know you well enough to say that conclusively yet. So in what ways are you a generalist, uh, a person of many interests, and in what ways are you a specialist, zeroing in on what might be a career in X, whatever X happens to be, finance or maybe something else? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think in when I'm a generalist is about how I, I'm always looking for new things to do and new things to learn. Um, I think it's it's really important to sort of build skills when you're young because it. I think at least when you're young, the brain chemistry is a lot easier to take in information um, and sort of build that into a skill that you can use later on. Hmm. Um, and as a generalist, I'm always looking for different experiences in terms of leadership, volunteerism um, that I can uh, interact in and sort of develop these different skills. Um, but more as a specificist or looking at things more specifically, I I like to take online courses. And so hmm. I, I don't know if you saw my LinkedIn, I completed I did. four Washington online courses, yeah. um, which are all focused in finance. And actually right now, I'm going through the Google um, certification for data science, trying to figure out this computer science side of um, finance and high, or just data science in general and how that can be applied to um, my different interests. Mm -hmm. It it sure seems to me. I did I did note that in your LinkedIn, um, and felt like there wasn't going to be enough time during this hour <laughs> to ask you about it. But it it sure seems to me, buddy, like you see life as this 
pretty fantastic buffet. And you're making some very interesting and strategic decisions about what foods you're going to put on your plate. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, for sure. It It's a very bountiful buffet. Mm. How did you initially get connected to the Wharton School? Like, what? how did you figure that out and say, I'm going to go here and do these courses? <laughs> um, that was a couple summers ago, I think in my sophomore year summer, when I sort of, as most students, just trying to figure out what am I going to do during the summer? Besides mm. hanging out with friends, of course. Yeah. Um, and what I figured out was, shouldn't I start to sort of develop myself in a more technical way that's not really provide that I'm not really able to currently at school um, and what are the different ways that I can start to develop those skills those more technical skills mm-hmm. and more technical knowledge um, and I went online did my research and found online courses and that was the gateway to mm-hmm. figuring about what course I want to take and take in what area um, how many of those courses I wanted to take. And so during that summer, I was able to complete those four courses, mm-hmm. hang out with friends, do a little bit of volunteering, um, mm-hmm. and just build up my technical knowledge as well as my different soft skills. Mm-hmm. And so so going back to most likely to succeed, I'll share a thought with you. I'm, I, I worry sometimes, buddy, that, you know, because education has been one way for more than a hundred years, the film mm-hmm. goes out of its way to point out that our education system was created in 1893. Um, because that system has been a particular way, we we seem to put tremendous pressure on young people to specialize early. Like, you know, where are you going to college and what are you going to study? And and sometimes we react negatively when they don't say that they have a particular area that they're gonna that they're gonna specialize in. So, you know, I'm I'm not sure what I'm asking here, except maybe what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> I, I definitely think that's true, and um, I have definitely heard the question, what do you want to do when you grow up, very often. Yeah. Um, and I know that I'm I'm lucky to have an answer and that that's not the case for um, all of my peers, mm. uh, but I think that it is partially the school's fault because at, in high school, you are prepared for college, and in college, you're prepared for your career. Right. However... When you are in high school, you're choosing your college major, which chooses your career. So really in high school, you should be learning about the different career options you have and how you're going to study that in college. And so to me, it's it's like you should be figuring that out sort of while you're in high school. And since you're in high school, you still have all of that time to decide, is this really what I want to do in the future? And if not then you're free to change it without costing your parents thousands of dollars because mm-hmm. of a major change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a point, buddy, when I was teaching at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls, and this was probably around maybe 2008, 2009, when I realized that the colleges were taking a different track with students. Many of them were beginning to try to land the student, the high school student early by telling them, we'll accept you if you choose nursing, for example, or if you choose finance. Um, And it seemed to lock the young person into that 
pathway way, way too early. I mean, I, I don't want to be judgmental, but it felt like that to me. It felt like a recruitment process. Um, and so, you know, what do you, what, what are your thoughts about that? That's, that's interesting. I've actually never heard of it, but I guess that's because I wasn't recruited yeah. um, to go for a specific school. Yeah, that's because um, they saw you as such an epic generous. They're like, we'll never pin this guy down. <laughs> well, I, I sure hope so. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. So, okay. So one one more question for you today, buddy. Um, I really appreciate this time that you've given to us. Um, I love the concept of, quote, flow. Um, according to psychologist uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, which is an incredibly hard name to pronounce, uh, who wrote a book called Flow, um, during flow, people typically experience deep enjoyment and creativity and a total involvement with life. And so I wonder if we could close today uh, by having you describe a moment during your time, maybe uh, in middle school or maybe in the academy at Punahou, where you experienced flow. In other words, you were doing something so deeply that nothing else seemed to matter. And that's related to school? Mm-hmm. Or let's say it doesn't have to be related to school. Let's let's say it doesn't have to be related to school. Let's say anything that you've done, let's say in the fast in the last few years, where you felt that sense of flow, like you were in the zone and nothing else seemed to matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say that during this past summer, when I was working as a um, financial analyst, that when I was working on the Excel spreadsheet or the Google Sheet spreadsheet that I built. Um, it was a very long and intensive task, but I, I most definitely did experience a sense of flow in that, uh, there were times where I would just step back and think to myself, wow, I'm actually enjoying myself creating a financial spreadsheet, Hmm. which is something that not many people (laughs) would be able to say. I don't think they would. Yeah. Right. And it was, it was interesting because I always hear about people discovering their passions um, I guess either mm-hmm. earlier or later on and sort of going through this process of creating this financial model and being in my state of flow sort of, I guess to me, felt like me starting to develop and discover that passion for mm. or discover a more deep passion for finance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's an amazing thing when you start to make those discoveries, right? Like you're, you, you, you might have been thinking a long time ago, well, you know, I'm, I'm interested in finance. And now you're, you're potentially at a point where you're saying I could be passionate about finance, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, I think that's definitely advant- an advantage. And it just goes back to putting myself out there for different experiences and really figuring it out, figuring out what exactly I want to do in the future and what Mm. I would enjoy doing in the future. 
Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And so what a, what a perfect way to bring this hour to a close, buddy. Um, this has been the highest compliment I can pay you is that this has been the most fun I've had in a long, long time. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, 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 I'm a podcast geek and, and I've done a lot of these interviews, but this has been a blast today. Um, and so I wish you and your mom, Kari, and, and Evan, your father, um, and the rest of your family, um, good health uh, as we come to the end of this COVID tunnel, hopefully, the God's willing. Um, and um, I wish you luck as you come to your graduation and um, as you surge forward into the future, uh, becoming one of our leaders of the future, buddy, and also one of the persons who's going to be solving the great puzzles of the future. So good luck to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Today, I am starting a new way to end my episodes. I am a great admirer of Hawaii Business Magazine, which does a series each year called 20 for the Next 20. This series highlights mostly younger folks in Hawaii who will be powerful forces for good in the next 20 years. I will end each episode by briefly highlighting one of these amazing individuals. Since taking the helm at the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement in 2018, Kuhio Lewis has helped the nonprofit, a community development financial institution, grow its revolving loan fund from 3.5 million to 6 million. He's also helped create a program that prepares people for careers in carpentry, firefighting, police, solar, and electricity. And he's assisted over 100 businesses and launched an online marketplace called Pop-Up Makeke. Kuhio, you are amazing. If you listeners want to know more, go to hawaiibusiness.com and search 20 for the next 20. This podcast is inspired by the book, What School Could Be. Please join the newly launched What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dentersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send us your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, stay safe, wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and for the love of the gods, get vaccinated. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. 
Until the next episode, ahui ho, and we will see you soon.